Gospel of John, the Gospel of John chapter 13, and I want to, would you please stand? Thank you. Good to be reminded, amen. John chapter 13, and uh, if you would look with me at verse 1. This is going to be a very simple lesson this morning, but it's, it's a very important one, and so don't allow its uh, simplicity to lose its potency. It's very, very powerful truth. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper, and laid aside His garments, and took a towel and girded Himself. After that, He poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith He was girded. Then cometh He to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto Him, Lord, dost Thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto Him, What I do Thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Thank you. You may be seated. Any church desirous to please the Lord with their life and their ministry needs the grace of God. Without the grace of God, a church cannot do the things God requires of a church to do. We're saved by grace, and we praise the Lord for that. By grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. But the work of the church is also a result of the grace of God. Paul said to the church at Corinth, I want you to know, I want you to take note of, I do you to wit, of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. Well, what was this grace that they received in Macedonia? They were given the ability to do things beyond their means. And that is exactly what grace does. Grace enables us to do things we otherwise ought not be able to do. It is a divine influence on our hearts, on our ministry, enabling us to accomplish things we cannot do. In short, without Christ, We can do nothing. We need the Lord. We need His blessing. We need His grace. 
But the Bible says three times, once in the Old Testament in a proverb, and then the Holy Spirit moves Peter to record it, and then James to record it. That God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And if we need God's grace, and I believe we all would amen that we do need God's grace, and if God says, this is the crowd I give my grace to, we would do well to make sure we're in that crowd that receives the grace of God. If there were no other examples in Scripture about the dangers of pride, if we didn't know who Nebuchadnezzar was, if we didn't see David act out in pride, if we didn't see King Saul give us examples of pride, if we didn't see Peter uh, act out in pride, if there were no other examples in Scripture on the dangers of pride, beloved, this one principle should be enough for us to try to avoid it in our lives, that God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God has no desire to bless a proud people. Why? Because we might think it's about us then. We might think that we had something to do with that. But God gives His grace to the humble. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said this, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in reputation. No, that's not what He said. He said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. The humility that Jesus Christ gave us the example for, which is what he said in John 13, was genuine. It was a genuine humility. And the surest way that we as individuals and our churches corporately can be guaranteed the grace of God is to have a genuine humility in our hearts, a genuine humility in our ministries. And so Jesus here gives a tremendous example of what humility looks like. It's more than just service, and I pray that by the end of the Sunday school hour, we'll uh, have seen this a little more clearly. If you would take your Bible, turn over to the Gospel of Luke. I want to show you something, because Jesus knew the state of his flock. He is the greatest shepherd that we have in Scripture. He's the greatest shepherd we could know about. He knows the state of his flock. This is a cross-reference to this supper that was being given here and the Lord washing the disciples' feet. And I want you to notice in Luke chapter 22, notice what the Bible says in verse 24. And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the what? The greatest. Now if you read the context, this is the cross-reference to the very time Jesus is about to wash the disciples' feet. But Jesus knows their hearts. He knows what they're thinking about. And at this very time, there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. And so understand in John chapter 13, Jesus knew perfectly well the state of His flock. He knew what they needed. And yet it says here in verse 1, this is so amazing, having loved His own which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. This is two things. Number one, the object of the Lord's love. It's His church. Praise the Lord for that. Amen. He loved His own. That's the object of His love. He loves this church. He loves Long Island Baptist Church. And He loved them unto the end. So, well, He knew He was about to die. Well, we know that the Lord was going to die, but He wasn't going to stay dead. Amen. 
And so there's a great application that if it meant that Jesus will love you to the end of his life, and we know he's never going to die, well, he'll love us forever. And we praise the Lord for that. But what this phrase means is not the end of his life. The unto the end means this. Jesus loved them unto the uttermost. The farthest point you can go. The farthest measurement. In other words, all-encompassing. Now, why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because we are supposed to love each other as Christ loves us. And if the measurement for our love for each other is Christ's love for His church, and it is, and, it's, and John is a recipient of this, and he says he loved his own and he loved us unto the end, well, let's put that in perspective. Jesus knew who they were. Arthur Pink said this, Jesus knew that Philip would misunderstand him, that three of them would sleep while he prayed and agonized. He knew that Peter would deny him and that Thomas would doubt him and that they all would forsake him. Yet he loved them unto the end. Aren't you thankful for that kind of love? Praise the Lord. But there's a, there's a bigger clarity here. There's a greater clarity here, if I could say it that way. And that is the backdrop to which we see this love and humility displayed by Jesus Christ. If you've ever shopped for a piece of jewelry, a diamond is what I'm thinking about, and you go to the jeweler, usually they have a glass case there. And you say, I'd like to see that setting or I'd like to see that ring. And they take that ring out of the jewelry case and they don't lay it on top of the glass. They typically would lay a piece of dark velvet, blue velvet or black velvet, something like that. And then they take that diamond and they put it on that background. Why is that? Because the beauty of that diamond, the clarity of that diamond is seen greater when there's a contrast behind it. If you just put it on glass, it's hard to see all that's there. So they want to make the background so that when you see the diamond, you see as much of it as you possibly can. This is what's happening in John 13. The background is dark. The contrast drops a black curtain behind this chapter. It makes everything in Christ's expression of love stand out in such clarity and in such beauty. Because we see in Judas Iscariot the blackest hatred contrasts the purest love. It seems the more Jesus failed to do what Judas thought Jesus should do, Judas is ambitious, Judas knows what he wants, and Jesus seemingly continues to go against that, the more the hatred rises up in his heart. Take your Bible, turn with me back to Matthew 26. I want you to understand the the setting here, not only of the disciples and the strife among them, but of, this, of Judas and his heart. Matthew 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver, the price of a slave in the Old Testament. They made a promise with Judas. You, you deliver him unto us, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. Note, notice verse 16. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Jesus knew that. Jesus understood who Judas was. There's a man who is seeking opportunity to betray him. And yet he is experiencing the benefit and the blessings 
of being around God's people and being around the Lord's church. Verse 2, for being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Judas is about to get what he thinks he wants. Judas is self-interested. Judas is driven by ambition, by self-satisfaction. And Judas, I believe, has no capacity to love according to the Bible. Why is that? Because I believe when you study biblical love, charity, the, the, the love that gives without any expectation of return, we'll look at that in the next hour, pride cannot love. Pride can't love. Pride is too consumed with self to think of others. Pride cannot esteem others better than themselves. Pride cannot love. Self-interest cannot love. And Judas can't love. He hates anything that stands in the way of his ambition. So understand, that's the backdrop to Jesus' love for his own unto the end. This is the backdrop, the contrast that we see. Now, if we think we know someone like this, there's a good chance we're wrong. Because Judas was this, but he did not look like he was this. False humility is a horrible thing, but false humility is also a dangerous thing. You may have those around you fooled. The disciples may look around wondering, who could Jesus possibly be talking about? But Jesus knew who he was talking about. That's why he said, you're not all clean. Jesus knows who's clean. He knows who's not clean. And so we may have those around us fooled, but we don't have the Lord fooled. False humility is a dangerous and a horrible thing. When we think about true humility, not false humility, but true humility. This is a long quote, but I'd like you to please listen carefully to what Charles Spurgeon says about true humility. This is too good of a quote to cut down. Amen? So I'm just going to read the whole thing, but it's really, it's really helpful. Please listen closely. Quote, True humility does not continually talk about dust and ashes and prate about its own infirmities. Rather, it feels all that others would say, for it possesses an inwrought feeling of its own nothingness. It understands its true condition, its own nothingness. Very likely, the most humble man in the world will not bow to anybody. John Knox was a truly humble man. Yet if you had seen him march before Queen Mary with the Bible in his hand to reprove her, perhaps you would have rashly said, what a proud man. Cringing men that bow before everybody, they are the truly proud men. But humble men are those who think themselves so little, they do not think it worthwhile to stoop to serve themselves. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were humble men. For they did not think their lives were worth enough to save them by a sin. Our lives are not worth it. Yeah, but if you do this, you'll be saved. But it would, it would require us to sin and our lives aren't that special. And so they stood. They didn't bow. See, it was the opposite of pride. It was true humility. They understood that, that they were the Lord's servants. Daniel was a humble man because he did not think his position or his station or his whole self was worth enough to save them by leaving off 
prayer. Just don't pray, Daniel. That's all you have to do. Just, just, just stop praying. No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but you'll lose your position. You'll lose your life. Right. It's not my life anyway. That's true humility. So Spurgeon continues and gives us this command, speaking especially to men. Seek to have that breaking in pieces by the Holy Spirit. That breaking in the mortar with the pestle which God Himself gives to His children. Humility is a thing which must be genuine. The imitation of it is the nearest thing in the world to pride. Seek that every twig of His rod may drive pride out of you, so that by the blueness of your wound, your soul may be made better. Seek of Him, if He does not show you the chambers of imagery within your own heart, that He may take you to Calvary, and that He may show you in His brightness and His glory that you may be humble before Him. Now listen closely. This is, this is really powerful. Never ask to be a mean, meaning a lowly. Never ask to be a lowly, a simple, cringing or fawning thing. Rather, ask God to make you a man. The world looks at, at timid, timidity and weakness. And say, oh, that's, that's humility. It's really often fueled by pride, insecurity, and fear. Ask God to make you a man because those are scarce things nowadays. This was in the 1800s. A man who only fears God who knows no fear of any other kind, do not give yourselves up to any man's power or guidance or rule, but ask of God that you may have the humility towards Him which gives you the noble bearing of a Christian before others. Amen. End quote. The noble bearing of a Christian. It is a noble bearing to be called Christian. Amen. It is a noble uh, uh, a calling that we can be ambassadors for Christ. Not for a denomination, but ambassadors for Christ. Another man said this, True humility does not pray for those affected by the grenade. True humility jumps on the grenade. In other words, the willingness to give ourselves for, so that the, for the benefit of others. This is what the Bible says Humility is, this is what Jesus exhibits in John 13, and it's what we need today if we want the Lord's grace on our lives and ministry. So, back to John 13. The Bible says in verses 3 and 4, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands, and that He was come from God and went to God, He riseth from supper, and laid aside His garments, and took a towel, and girded Himself. Now, I want you to be clear Jesus was not overcome with emotion here. Jesus didn't suddenly uh, get distracted by the fact that He's nearing the end of His time with His disciples. Jesus knew who He was. That's why the Bible words it the way it does. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He was come from God. He knew who He was. Marcus Dodd said, For a fisherman to pour water over another fisherman's feet was no great condescension. But that he, in whose hands are all human affairs, 
and whose nearest relation is the Father in heaven, that he should thus condescend, is of unparalleled significance. Amen. We've never seen anything like the Lord Jesus Christ. We, there's no, he, he has preeminence in everything, including in examples of humility. It is no wonder that when God promises to exalt those that humble themselves, it is no wonder that there is no one exalted higher than our Lord Jesus Christ, because no one has ever condescended so low as our Lord Jesus Christ. No one has ever left so high a position and humbled themselves to so low a position than Jesus. He has earned the right to be exalted. He's not exalted simply just because he's part of the Godhead. No, he has earned the righteousness he promises you and I, and he has earned the right to be exalted. We ought not forget that. And that our Lord, our Savior, says in John 13, I'm doing this to give you an example. That amazes me. Now that example means that there's an expectation. If I say here, let me show you how to do this, there's an expectation on my end that you are going to do this. I used to find it humorous. My dad would show me how to rake the yard. He would rake approximately three square feet. Say, that's all you do. That's that simple. Here. And then he'd hand me the rake. He didn't do that so that I would admire what a, a, a great raker he was. No, he was showing me so that I would do it the way he wanted me to do it. Because trust me, if I did it the way I wanted to do it, the yard would not be raked. So he showed me. There's an example. There's an expectation. And Jesus says very clearly, I did this as an example for you. That means for us. Amen? We're the Lord's church today. Praise the Lord for that doesn't make us better than anybody, but it does sure make us better off. Praise the Lord. Amen. So this is, this is application for us. Now, I know you know the story. It's quite a humorous one here. Um, the Bible says in verse 6, Then cometh he to Simon Peter. Don't ever think that sentence structure doesn't matter. It does. Every word matters. That means that Jesus did not start with Peter. He eventually got to Peter. Then cometh he to Peter. Now it's Peter's turn. And now Peter, and I've been guilty of this myself, Peter begins to exhibit some of this humility that's not necessarily humility. He says, Jesus, uh, you're going to wash my feet? Now let's think about this. If Peter thought that Jesus shouldn't be washing feet, then when he started with the other disciples, Peter should have said, Lord, no, 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 let me do that. But he didn't do that. He didn't say, Lord, no, no, what are you doing? Why, why, are, you, why are you starting to wash the disciples? He didn't do that. He finally gets to Peter. He comes to Peter. And then Peter says, Lord, you're, you're going to wash my feet? And then he says this, and he uses the phrase, I remember from, uh, if you've ever had any marriage counseling, and by the way, marriage counseling is not a bad thing. I, I, I don't understand this, uh, this confusion with uh, marriage counseling being a negative. I, I know people that go to a gym. You guys know, have you ever heard of a gym? I've seen them before. I've passed by them on the road, all right? And I hear people go in there. But anyway, uh, do you know why people go back to the gym? Because they want to stay in shape. Don't ever be embarrassed for seeking help. 
or wanting to get stronger in something or wanting to get better. That, that, that you asking for help, that shows how much you care about your relationship. Amen? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But anyway, you go on marriage counseling and you hear this, but, uh, well, he always leaves the light on or, he, or she always does this. And you, you've heard this. We have to be careful using those terms because they don't always do that, right? Well, notice what Peter says here. Verse 8. Then Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. And then verse 9, Simon saith unto the Lord, Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. You know, literally one time, Lord, you are never going to do this. The Lord says, I have to, otherwise, then okay, I want you to do that. What's he doing? He's, he's reacting off the top of his head. There's no heart here. It's just what things look like. And so when he hears Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He says, well, don't stop there. Wash my whole body. Jesus says, no, you don't understand. You, don't, you need to have your whole body washed, just your feet. And Peter finally gets it and he allows the Lord to do it. He says, you'll understand after this. So it's a bit of a humorous thing, but we, we've gone through that before. But I want you to notice here in verse 12. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I have done to you. And I imagine about that point, the disciples started realizing, I feel like something bigger than just our feet being cleaned happened. Jesus, the one who spoke in parables, Jesus, the one who gave illustrations, maybe there's something more to this than just the Lord wanting our feet to be clean. And of course there is. There is a spirit and an attitude that He expects from His church. There is an expectation that He has. And so He says... Ye call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. He was reminding them, don't think because of what I did, it has changed who I am. I'm still your Lord, I'm still your Master. You know that, and you're right to think it, because I am. But because I'm your Lord, and because I'm your Master, doesn't mean that I'm not willing to serve you. And you get a church filled with people who know who they are before the Lord, I know I'm your brother. I know I'm your. I know you're not better than me. And I know I'm not better than you. But I want to serve you. You get a church filled with people who desire to esteem others better than themselves, who desire to place others before them, who desire to serve each other. You watch how strong and how mighty God blesses that church, because it has people in it that know that we don't get the glory. God gets the glory, and so I'm going to put myself aside. The reality is simple. Most of us are quick to amen John the Baptist when he says he must increase. Amen. Of course he should increase. He's Jesus. But that's not all John said. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's the part we struggle. That's where we need the Lord because we can't do that on our own. We don't mind saying Jesus and preaching Jesus and talking about how wonderful Jesus is and those things are true. He must increase. But beloved, we must, same word, decrease. We have to get out of the way. John compared himself to the bridegroom, excuse me, to the, to the friend of the bridegroom, excuse me. Now you've been to a wedding before. You know that typically there's the, the best man who's up here. And uh, the groom is up here waiting for the bride to come. 
you can imagine how awkward it may be if the bride begins to come down the aisle and suddenly the best man gets a big smile on his face, kind of excuses the groom out of the way and steps into the front. Say, well, what are you, what are you doing? So well, I'm the best man. Not a good man, I'm the best man. Yes, but you realize that the ceremony is not about you. You are here on behalf of the groom. Now, it's a silly illustration. And we, we say it's humorous, but that's what John said he was. He had a job to do. But then Christ showed up. And it's not his job to stand out in front. It's not his job to continue being in the spotlight. No, his job is to step aside and let the Lord get the glory that he deserves. He must increase Beloved, we are in the second part of that. We must decrease. There should be no uh, uh, part in our lives. We'll look at this, if the Lord allows, Monday or Tuesday night, about the importance of Christ being seen clearly. But here's the beauty of what Jesus is doing here. He says in verse 13, You call me Master and Lord and say, Well, for so I am. He must increase, but we must decrease Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Jesus was not just talking this lesson. Jesus was demonstrating. We serve a wonderful Savior. We serve a great God. We serve a loving Lord. Here, let me show you how to do it. Verse 16, Verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Jesus knew who he was, and he's reminding them who they were. And you need to know who you are too. Hint, it's not the Lord and Master. We are, we are saved, we're believers, we're, we're brethren, but we're servants. Doulos, slaves, we're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, and servants serve. That's what we do. So here's a question. Who has the final say in your life? If you're going to make a decision, who do you consult? If you're going to make a decision, live your life, you're going to do something or not do something, who has the final say? A servant of the Lord Jesus Christ would reply, my Lord and my Master has the final say. Because... That's where humility lives. It knows that this is not about me. Being saved doesn't mean, and being part of the Lord's church doesn't mean, that we are just spiritual enough to do what we want to do and then pray God blesses it because, after all, we're spiritual. That's not how the believer lives. Doing what we want to do and then quit going to the Lord, Lord, please bless this because I'm doing it now. No. The believer, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, prays first, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I, I know that I have a desire on my heart. I know what I, what, what I want, but what do you want? I'm not the Lord and I'm not the master. I'm the servant. So my job is to submit to your will. Like the Lord said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The Apostle Paul knew what this was like. In Acts chapter 16, he was going to go preach the word in Asia. What's wrong with that? Who would argue preaching the word? Nobody. But the Holy Spirit said no. The Holy Spirit forbade him from preaching the word in Asia. 
seems odd, doesn't it? Well, God's ways aren't our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. But do you know what Paul did? Paul obeyed. And he said, it's a good thing, but it's probably the wrong time. So I'm not going to do it. And so he began to assay, strategize to go into Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, I don't want you to do that either. We know the story. He gets the what's often referred to as the Macedonian call. He goes to Philippi. And we see yet again this humility displayed through the Apostle Paul. A true servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a title. He lived it. He's heard about Peter. He knows what happened to Peter when Peter was in prison. And uh, suddenly an angel showed up, opened the doors, uh, threw off his chains, and they walked out onto the street. Church is praying. I love how the Bible says this, that, that Herod vexed his mighty hand, but prayer was made by the church. Amen. So Herod can do what he wants to do, but the church is praying. And the Lord is in the church, not with Herod. And that's a great story, so I'd commend it to you to study, perhaps. But Peter gets out of prison. Peter goes out. You know the story. Rhoda finds out, and she tells everybody, and they don't believe him. You remember the story. Well, the Bible says there that everyone heard about it. You know Paul heard about it. And now he's in jail, and he's chained up. And now there's an earthquake, and his chains fall off, and the doors swing open wide. Now, Miguel, if that was me, brother, I'm going... All right. Happened to Peter? Happened to me. Look, praise the Lord. Let's go. But Paul didn't do that. Do you understand the discernment this man had? Do you understand the humility this man had? Paul, you can you can go, you can leave. But he was so sensitive to his Lord. He said, "No, no, there's something else going on." And he stayed put. You know, the story, the jailer comes in, the jailer's converted to Christ. And then his house and his family, a church is started. And then you get to Acts 19. And I, this is, I love this. And you find out that by Acts 19, all of Asia heard the gospel. And the word of God grew mightily. Paul wants to preach the word in Asia. God says, no, not now. So he obeys him. Paul ended up getting far more than he probably thought was even possible. Because because he obeyed God here, and because he was uh, uh, humble enough to serve Him here, and he was discerning enough to obey Him here, God worked in Asia. God wasn't going to leave Asia alone. He had a better plan than Paul did. And because Paul submitted to it, all of Asia heard the Gospel, and the Word of God grew mightily. That doesn't happen without Paul's humility as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't kicking the door down saying, no, you can't tell me it's wrong. I know it's right. The Bible says preach the gospel to every creature. I'm going to go preach the gospel to every creature. No, he submitted himself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit and he obeyed. That's what we're talking about in John 13. That's humility. That's serving with the idea of a Lord and Master and others in mind. And that's the humility God evidently blessed all throughout the book of Acts. And this is a promise for us as well. Because as it says in verse 16, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Verse 17, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Now, I say this to our church often, and I'm going to say it here, you probably heard it. You do not have to be a Greek scholar to know your Bible. 
You don't have to know Greek to understand the Bible. Praise the Lord, we have the Bible in plain English. But when you study, sometimes it helps bring things out that are, that are interesting. And in this verse is an example. There are two ifs in this verse. One, the first one, is an indicative. If ye know these things, this means like this, since you know these things, because you know these things, happy are ye, and this second if is conditional. This is the if like you and I think about, maybe, if you do it. Not that it's guaranteed. Now here's the reality. If you look at it, the confidence, the, in, the indicative is on the Lord's side. The conditional is on ours. That means obedience is required on our part. Humility is required on our part. I asked the question a few minutes ago, who has the final say in your life? And the reality is this. If the Word of God, if the Scriptures, if the Bible does not have the final say in your life, then don't say God has the final say in your life. Because the Bible, the Scriptures, is God's Word. And so the final authority in our lives is God. Well, how can we know if we're obeying God? Does it line up with His Word? Yes. Then go forward with confidence. His Spirit, if you have not... As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. This is like a math equation, okay? As many as are led by the Spirit of God, it's the same amount that are, that are the sons of God. You don't have sons of God that aren't led by the Spirit of God. You get that? It's an, it's an equal thing. As many as. That's exactly what it means. And so, that, that implies that if you are a son of God, you are led by the Spirit. You're not trying to grieve the Spirit. You're yielding to the Spirit. Well, how does the Spirit work? His, uh, his, his Spirit bearing witness with our conscience, Paul says to the saints at Rome, God, you know what it feels like to be led by the Spirit. And when we act like we don't, we are betraying ourselves. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and speaks to the child of God. We are a servant of God. And our responsibility, just like these disciples who have the living Word in front of them, giving them this example, is to serve one another. Now, the clock moves much faster on the East Coast. So I'm going to... I'm going I'm to speed through this last part here, so if you'll just bear with me. Jesus wasn't speaking arbitrarily to a group gathered on a hillside. He was speaking to His church. He was giving this as an example to His church. This is not a promise that's, that's thrown out like some sort of cosmic pixie dust. This promise of grace being given to the humble, is this example of servanthood, it's given to His church. You can't forget that, Long Island Baptist. This, in John 13, is for you. And so when he says this, if I then your Lord have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. That's for you. And it may not be washing feet, but there's going to be something that you can do to serve the Lord's church. Not how can the church serve me. How can I serve the Lord's church? How can I be a help? What can I do? Maybe it's not up on the platform. Maybe it's in your prayer closet. I'm thinking right now of a, of a, of a dear lady in this church who um, most visitors probably wouldn't even recognize, but she's had such an impact on this ministry because of her witness and because of her prayer life. 
There's a lot of ways you can serve the church. Husbands, you are told to love your wife like Christ loves the church. Here's the way Christ loved this church. He loved his own. You have your own. To the end, uttermost. That's how we ought to love our wives. There's so much application in in this chapter, but I want to end with this final one, and that is this. If we believe that the Bible is true, and I believe that we do, then we believe a threefold witness that God resisteth the proud but giveth grace to the humble is a reminder that we ought to seek not humility of reputation, not that others would look at us, oh, what a humble person, but true humility. True humility in the heart. Learning of Christ because He is meek and lowly of heart. And that humility will be borne out in our service to each other, our love for each other. Yes, there'll be people that betray you. Jesus had it. There'll be people that do you wrong. Jesus had that. But that's when the love of Christ is so much more clearly seen. That's when the clarity is there and the beauty is there. It's contrasted against those things. So don't let those things discourage you. Just let them be a backdrop to, your lo- to the love that you have for the Lord and the love of the Lord you have for each other. Serve each other. Be humble. Because God promises to give His grace, what we need, to the humble. Father in heaven, thank you for this chapter and thank you for this lesson. And Lord, while we didn't exhaust everything in, this, this, uh, in these verses, we'll trust that what was said was uh, used by you to reach the hearts of those that were here. Father, I do ask that you would uh, bless those that are um, preparing for uh, the, the choir and special music and the, all the things that will happen in the next hour. I pray, Father, that you would prepare hearts for the message. I pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased with the time of fellowship now. We ask these things in Jesus' name.